we've been in a, a, a series called Failing Forward where kind of looking at the life of Moses, uh, we're, we're seeing that Moses, while he uh, is a great leader and a great prophet, he's also kind of a messed up guy, and he makes a lot of mistakes. He, he, he's constantly falling on his face. But what's cool is he falls on his face in a way that, uh, that doesn't stop him. God, God stays with him and, and moves beyond where uh, he, he's, he's dropped. I, uh, for, for those of you who know, um, I also, uh, aside from also from being a pastor, I'm also, uh, I teach grad students. I teach uh, future pastors. I teach future missionaries, uh, future counselors, Christian counselors. I teach them theology. And I found that I have two different uh, types of students. The first type of student tends to be uh, somebody who's maybe been out of school for a long time. They've been, they've been in the real world, and then, you know, they feel the call to ministry, and so they come back to school. Uh, these, these students tend to be very, very earnest, very, very, uh, like, they're hardcore. And I found that when, when they interact with me, they tend to be more like, like, they kind of see me as an authority figure. Even though a lot of times they're older than I am, by far richer than I am, more successful than I am, they, they look at me, they say, hey, well, there's probably a reason that he's teaching this class, and, and presumably we can learn something from him. And so they treat me with some respect. They're like, a lot of them will be like, Dr. Bennett. Professor Bennett. I'm like, it's okay. You can call me Tom. It's not a big deal. Like, we're, we're in this together, doing theology. Uh, but they, they have, there's, a, there's a sort of a distance there between us um, that actually ends up helping them learn because they expect to get something from me. And they're not just, you know. The other type of student tends to be much younger. Usually they're early to mid-20s. They've probably just finished their undergraduate work or, or just recently done so. They've figured everything out. And they're going to make a career out of working in the church, which is a weird thing to think about having a career in, but that's where we are these days. And as a result, they, they know that they're destined to become uh, very successful, famous pastors, uh, which also blows my mind. Uh, and, and really, they, they need the degree. They need the letters after their name so they can get their foot in the door. And so they treat me like I'm their servant, right? Uh, because I'm, they're paying good money, or you know, they're taking out loans, good money, to, to get me to write A on their transcript so that whoever's in charge of paying them knows that they're, they're a legitimate pastor, right? These people, interestingly, uh, tend to do less well in my class. They, uh, and, and, and full disclosure, I mean, I try to inflate grades as much as possible. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not here to make anyone upset. I'm trying to—I want good reviews— uh, and so I'm happy to give them whatever letters they think they've earned. That's fine. But I do know that they've not learned anything. Because I'm their buddy. I'm their servant. I'm their friend. I'm not someone that can help them get somewhere and learn some things. No, I'm just the, I'm, they, they've, they've paid for a little friendo. Hey, Tom, you're great. Thanks for, uh, you know, all the time and effort that you put in. Uh, now I'm moving on. And it's interesting that uh, I end up being much closer to the students, the first kind of student than the second kind. Even though the second kind are usually very casual with me, they're very fun. But it turns out that the ones who are really like more earnest and they really believe there might be something, those are the ones that I tend to end up spending a lot more time with and, and really even developing relationships with. And I think we're going to see that the same sort of dynamic is at play with Moses and God. In this text, we're going to see that Moses uh, maybe isn't as afraid of God as he should be. So let's read together. This, I, I use the New King James. I, I made one 
edit, but I'll point that out. So Yahweh said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken. For you have found favor or grace in my sight, and I know you by name. So Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But God said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And then Yahweh said, here's a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. And this is how it's going to be. While my glory passes by, I'm going to put you in the cleft or like the lip, the, the overhang of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And then I'll take away my hand. You'll see my back, but your, my face shall not be seen. A little bit of background here. We're in the part of the story where uh, God has liberated Israel from Egypt. They're, they're traveling in the wilderness, headed to the promised land. Uh, what's been going on, they've developed, they, they have a tent that they've put together. I think I have a picture of here, uh, the, the, the tabernacle. What would happen is they would camp on their way uh, to where they're headed, and, and they had a special place where God would and Moses would visit. I even have like a, a zoom in, like a, it eventually ends up looking like this. Uh, next slide. Um, where we're at, that all the stuff's not in there just yet. There's still, um, but the one cool thing is that you'll see there, that's the Ark of the Covenant where the, the smoke's coming out. That's the thing that melts Nazis in Indiana Jones. Uh, so that, that idea that there's like this glory that kind of hovers over the tent, even before the Ark of the, uh, the Covenant's there, uh, that's, that's part of it. And so God and Moses um, meet there on a regular basis. And it even says at the beginning of this chapter that uh, they, they speak face to face as if they were friends, like friends. And so when, when it says, I will also do this thing that you've spoken, what Moses has done, and Moses has been there and been like, hey God, will you do, will you be with us? Will you hang out with us? Will you stay with us? And, and Moses feels like he can just sort of talk to God as though they're buddies. Right? He's been having a conversation that buddies would have. Like, hey, God, you should come along with us on our trip to Israel. We've really enjoyed spending time with you. You seem like a fine God, and we like you, and we want to be with you. The problem there, this is the first thing you note, Jesus, is that Moses is so used to speaking with and depending on God, he thinks they're friends. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. They are friends. But they're not friends. And I'll show you what I mean. Let's go back to the text. What does Moses say, right? He's like, hey, show me your glory. Now, what, what, what is Moses doing? So Moses knows that they're headed towards the, uh, a land that's already occupied by people. The Canaanites, right? And the Canaanites have lots of different gods. There's like Baal, there's Ashtaroth, there's lots of different gods that the Canaanites worship. And one of the things that Moses is worried about, and rightly so, is that when they enter the land, they may not be able to beat those gods. What if those gods are better than Yahweh? What if Yahweh is not as good a god as some of the other gods? And what Moses, and Moses has become tight with God, they're buds, they hang out, and God gives them advice, they, they go back and forth, they, they, they are, and, and, and Moses thinks God's pretty good, he's, Yahweh's good. The question is, how good is Yahweh? How awesome is Yahweh? And so Moses gets to a point where he's gonna make the big act. He, he feels like he and God are tight enough where he can say to God, All right, I really want you to pour it on me. Show me your glory. 
What this means is show me all of your majesty, all of your power. Show me who you really are. Give me the unvarnished, no, like, don't, don't hide it. Give it to me straight, God. My first big ask of my father was for his 1992 silver V8 Mustang convertible. Look at that thing. Look at the lines on that early 90s, man. So cool. Oh, gosh. Uh, I, I don't remember exactly how it all worked out. I just, I just know that as I was approaching 16, I was like, man, I would love to have a car. And the coolest car I knew was my dad's 92 Mustang. It was a convertible. It had a ton of horsepower. It, like, you know, it was a muscle car. V8, the real deal. When I asked for this, this was a big ask for me. The problem was I had no idea what I was asking for. I thought I was asking for something that would make me cool. Okay? That's what I thought I was asking for. What my parents heard, my mom, her stepbrother was uh, killed in a car accident. So what she heard was, I'm asking for a death machine. Okay? That's where their heads were at because they know what a car is. They know what especially a muscle car can do, especially in the hands of a stupid teenager. They recognize that when I think I'm asking for something cool, I'm actually asking for something really dangerous. Nowadays, we, kids don't ask for cars because their parents are their chauffeurs. Parents drive their children about now. I found this out in youth group. We had this uh, kid who was like 18, still didn't have his license. And I was like, dude, why don't you get your license? He's like, my mom takes me where I want to go. <laughs> then we have kids that are like, like oh, no, we got, I just Uber. I'm like, okay. Check your privilege, kid. So, so what do kids ask for instead? Their smartphone. The big ask. Uh, did you know that the average age of your first smartphone in the United States of America is 11 years old? Now, to me, that means, and I don't know, your mileage may vary. I don't know uh, where your kids are at with that. But that means that probably the child has been asking for a cell phone from the time they're like 8-ish, I would say. And you've been like, no, 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 no. And finally, the 11th birthday, like, fine, just take it. Now, the kids, they're pro especially you're like a nine-year-old kid and you're asking for a smartphone. You, what you're asking for is like, you know, the ability to communicate with your friends, text them, you know, post your selfies, do your TikToks and your Snapchats. I mean, that's what, that's what kids are about, right? But the thing is, we as parents know that what we're actually giving them is like, you know, access to, uh, I don't know, the most horrible visuals in the entire world, things that will warp your mind and destroy you situations where you press the wrong button, start talking to the wrong person, you end up in a situation where you can get kidnapped or killed. Like, we're aware of the fact that these little tiny devices contain a ridiculous amount of power, power the kids themselves have never thought about, are completely unaware of. Moses does the same thing. He's like, hey, Yahweh, God, hey, man, just a little worried you're not going to be able to beat the other gods. Can you show me your glory just so I know that you're legit? Moses asks a favor from God with no notion of the consequences. The second thing in your note sheet. But God, God is going to inform Moses of the consequences. He's like, hey, maybe you're unaware of how this relationship's actually supposed to work, but let me clue you in. I will make all my goodness pass before you. All right, Moses, you got it, buddy. You want to know? You want to see me? Okay. 
I'll let, I'll let that happen. I will proclaim my name before you. What, uh, this is an ancient way of saying, I'm going to show you who I really am. In the ancient world, your name um, is, is sort of like the, it encompasses your whole being. And so when Yahweh says, I'm, uh, by the way, in the New King James, anytime you see uh, Lord in all capital letters, that's the writers of the Hebrew hiding the, the personal name of God, which is Yahweh. Uh, the Jewish people were, are very, they don't like to say Yahweh. They think it's disrespectful. Um, so when he says, I will proclaim the name, my name, Yahweh, before you, I'm going to show you what I'm really like. And then he says, Moses, I'm going to be kind, favorful, gracious to those I, I, to whom I will. I'm going to have compassion on those to whom I'm going to have compassion. What he's really saying is, Moses, you think that I'm just going to do this because we're pals. I'm going to, I'm going to have grace on you. I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to give, show, give you a favor. I'm going to do a favor for you, a solid for you. And moreover, I'm going to be compassionate to you, okay? You think you're asking to know who I am. What you're really asking is for me to kill you. But I'm going to, I'm going to be compassionate on you. He says, you can't see my face, man. No one sees my face and lives. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's hard to know exactly why it is. I mean, I think that, honestly, <laughs> Indiana Jones, like the whole idea of the face-melting Ark of the Covenant, is something like the glory of God is too much for humans to really encounter. It's just beyond. It's like God is so big that being face-to-face, like these eyes can't behold it. This heart can't like keep pumping in light of that awesomeness. The next slide. Um... When I was younger, I was a big fan of uh, military uh, literature. I, I thought that war was, was neat because I grew up in a time when we weren't at war. Um, now I don't like war at all. I think it's really bad. And that's because I have a lot of friends who um, were— my, you know, when I was in college when, uh, when 9-11 happened, and so I had a lot of friends who ended up serving— and uh, almost to a person, their experiences have left them, you know, just pretty, pretty wrecked. And one of the, uh, some of the literature that I've, I've followed over the years, uh, All the Quiet on the Western Front, um, it's written by Eric Maria Remarque. He was a, uh, a German combat veteran uh, from World War I, and he wrote a novel that kind of deals with his experience. Another of my favorite uh, military histories is uh, Stephen Ambrose's Band of Brothers. You may have seen the HBO a series that was built on it, but the book is really fascinating. What's cool about both these books is that they, they share a kind of arc that, um, that my friends who've served uh, talk about. And, and you'll notice, this is interesting, an interesting fact about military veterans, the ones who've actually seen horrible things almost never talk about it. The ones who've actually been involved in like serious combat uh, never speak, except when they're with other people or when they're <laughs> confessing to me about the PTSD that they're experiencing. Right, as a pastor, okay? So you almost never will hear, um, hey, this, uh, and then there's a reason for that. What they'll say, and this happened in All, All Quiet and Western Front and Band of Brothers, is that when they start out, they're like, oh, I'm invincible, and we're going to go, and we're going to, you know, stop the Nazis, or we're going to go, and we're going to beat the British and the French, and, and all our friends are together, and we're going to go and be heroes, and we're going to fight. And then they encounter the reality of, of, and the chaos of modern warfare, and the first thing that happens is they're like, yeah, all those stories that we thought about how cool war, that's wrong. War is really awful. It's very violent. 
And yet, they still, um, they, they've, they've survived, and so they still kind of have this sense of like, well, we're, we're getting good at this. There's a, a, I'm getting better at, you know, executing violence, following orders, um, winning battles, things like that. And then what happens is there comes a point um, where they stop even believing that they're good at it. They, they start to recognize that the chaos of the modern battlefield is such that you, absolutely, you have absolutely no control over whether you live or die. And this happens both in uh, All Quiet in the Western Front and Band of Brothers, where in Band of Brothers, it's right after the Battle of the Bulge because they're, uh, they're hunkered down and the, uh, the, the Germans are, are dropping um, bombs on them. And it's just completely random where the bombs fall, right? And so these guys who've been together a year, year and a half now in combat are seeing their friends who, no fault of their own, are just getting their legs blown off. And they're like, and they're like this is absolutely insane. And there comes a point where you realize, or these, these, these military veterans realize, these combat veterans realize, that what they thought they were getting into is just absolutely beyond anything that they had any concept of. And there's almost a sense of like, of just, I'm going to try and survive, and try and get through this, end this, um, and I'm going to do my best to, to protect my friends, and that's it. And there's no more thought about winning. There's no more thought about anything but just getting out alive. This is Moses' battle of the bulge moment. He, he, Moses, Moses is like, hey, God, what's up, man? Thanks for getting us out of Egypt. Don't know if you can handle the Canaanites. Just checking you out. This is going to be awesome. And then God says, oh, you want to see me? The problem that Moses has is that he's too fearless with God. And he puts himself in a situation that can kill him. He, he, he's like the, the person who, you know, the, the band of brothers, the 101st Airborne, they were all volunteers. They, all, they signed up. They signed up to go and jump behind enemy lines. Uh, Operation Market Garden, Battle of the Bulge. I mean, they were in most all of the, the, almost all of the major conflicts in World War II. They... They signed up for it because they figured, yeah, we're going to fight for America. You know? And that's a legitimate thing, and I'm not knocking that at all. I, I, think, it's, I think it's super important. I think it's amazing that, that people you know, have the courage to, to do that. But ultimately, they had no idea what they were getting into. And the same things happened with Moses. He thinks he's buddy-buddy with like, the local deity that can maybe help his people out. But he's actually buddy-buddy with the Lord and the creator of the universe. The one whose face can kill you. But God, God is like, I'm going to be compassionate to you, Moses. I'm, I'm going to give you what you want, as much of it as you can handle. Um, and and, I, and Because I, I love you, and I, I really do. I, I, I found favor with you. I like you. And so I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to protect you. you. Remember the part where he's going to hide Moses under a rock. He's going to pass by and kind of cover Moses' face. And when he's passed by, then he's going to let Moses see his back. And apparently that, you know, Moses can handle that. And so this is what happens. Um, now the Lord descended in the, uh, in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And he's like, here I am. And Yahweh passed before him and, and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, the, uh, the, Lord, uh, the Yahweh God. This is me. This is Yahweh God. Here's who I am. I'm merciful and gracious. I'm long-suffering. 
I abound in goodness and truth. I keep mercy. The mercy right there is the, the term chesed. It's a committed, loving loyalty, right? I, I am lovingly loyal for a thousand generations. If you open your pew Bible, it will say, keeping mercy to thousands of people. It's trying to translate the, uh, the Hebrew alapim. Modern translations have a, uh, a, a challenge with this because uh, elep, or al, uh, in the plural alapim, can mean thousands of people, but it can also mean thousands of things, generations. Translators of the New King James and also some modern translations, including the NIV and the TNIV, will say uh, thousands of people. Even though the, everywhere else this word gets used, it's always thousand generations. They change it here. Why? Read on. So I will keep covenant loyalty for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Iniquity, wickedness and transgression and sin. But wait. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the wickedness of fathers, really could be fathers and mothers, really parents, on their children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The reason uh, translators like to make alapim say thousands of people rather than generations, which is the natural Hebrew reading, is because they're afraid that God's contradicting himself. God's like, hey, I'm merciful and gracious. I'm long-suffering. There's goodness. There's truth. I'm loyal, covenant loyalty, you know, merciful, loving loyalty for a thousand generations. Oh, by the way, um, I, I don't let the guilty off the hook, friends. Oh, no. If you're, if you're naughty, I, I visit that, the, the, the judgment on that to you and your kids and your kids' kids and, your, and their kids' kids. Wait, what? Which is it, God? God, are you merciful and loving and you forgive wickedness and sin? Or do you like push it down and make, and make people pay? You just said the exact opposite things. Yahweh's like, oh, you wanted to know who I am, right? You wanted to know the real me. Guess what? I'm scary. The problem with me is you can't predict me. Oh, yeah, no, it's true. It's true. At the, at the heart of who God is, it's loving commitment. It's a desire for mercy and forgiveness. And yet, God is also terribly just. God is also terribly concerned with seeing sin meted out in the way that it ought to be. Consequences to actions, those are important to God. God's loving, he's kind, he's generous, he's ridiculously merciful. He's also, also, also ready to do some not-so-nice stuff. This is the part of the movie where the reveal happens. Do I have, uh, yeah, remember The Sixth Sense? The 1990s were a much better decade for movies than any of the ones that have come after. The 80s are the best movies. 80s was like the pinnacle of human achievement in terms of culture and art. The 90s were less so, but they were still great. Then after the millennium happened, like almost nothing has been any good. Uh, there's a few exceptions that I'm willing to, to talk about. For the most part, it's been a disaster. 
The Sixth Sense came out in 1999. It was an amazing film. If you remember it, like, at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, you find out that Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. What? No way! He's been counseling this kid, and they've been doing all this stuff. And then at the very end, you know, this kid sees dead people. It turns out Bruce Willis is one of the dead people. He's been saying, oh my God, it's unbelievable. What a reveal, what a twist. It was, if you haven't seen it, I ruined it for you, but you should, you should definitely go back and check it out because it's awesome. Just like, just, just pretend this never happened. It's an amazing movie. Uh, but what happens to the viewer is you're like, suddenly you're like, wait a minute. And you start thinking back to all these scenes and you realize, and now you see them in a completely new light. You're like, oh my gosh. No wonder Bruce Willis never changes his clothes. <laughs> right? You're like, that's why he's in the same outfit, because he's dead. Like, dead people don't change their clothes. It's true. You like, you rethink everything. You're like, oh, wow. It all makes a different kind of sense, a wilder, deeper, realer sense. Matrix is similar, and it, it, it's not quite as much of a twist. But in the Matrix, it's like, oh, by the way, all this reality, that you're, you're just a brain in a bat. You're just a computer simulation. Neil's like, what? Mind blown. Like, the reality is way different than I thought. And then he looks back at his life, and he's like, wow, all the stuff that I thought was real. No wonder it worked out that way. No wonder it was like that. The world is way different than I expected it. Moses has an opportunity to look back at this moment and be like, oh, dude, that was pretty crazy when God totally wrecked Egypt. That was pretty dark, what God did. We didn't cover the text, but God kills the first, the oldest baby in every Egyptian household. We're told that God, in order to do that, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God makes it so that Pharaoh is, is, keeps holding on, like, just so that God can do... That's pretty nuts. Moses is like, oh, you're my buddy. God, we've been through... Oh, wait. For a second now, you've got to start reckoning with who your friend really is. He's a lot bigger, a lot scarier than you thought he was. It's the next thing in your note sheets. God's presence reminds Moses he's not able to truly comprehend the unsearchable depths of God's being. I think that it's very intentional that Yahweh gives Moses, when he says, here I am, he gives Moses a paradox, a contradiction Saying, I'm the God who is relentlessly gracious and merciful. My first and last word is always grace. But it's not my only word. There's also a word of judgment. There's also a word of terror. There's also a word of fear. There's also a word of justice. And you're never going to be able to sort that out, Moses. You're going to be looking and sometimes you're going to be like, wow, God, I cannot believe how gracious and merciful you're being. And there's other times you're going to be like, wow, God, you are severe. And you will never really get me. And it's only when you start to understand that, that you're not going to get me, that you can really start to be friends with me. The 
moving on in the text. So this is uh, Moses' response, right? First thing, like the New King James says, uh, Moses made haste and bowed down in worship. That was in our last. Really, I mean, in contemporary English, it was like Moses dropped to his knees and started worshiping God. He's freaked out. He's like, oh, God, you're awesome. You're crazy. You're wild. You're not what I expected. You're, and then he gets to this. He said, if I've now found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my master, I pray, go among us, your people, even though we're a stiff-necked people, and let our, our wickedness and our sin go and take us, really, as your treasure. It's a gutsy move. Moses has just been told, yeah, I'm loving, I'm gracious, but watch out. And Moses says, if we have this God, nobody can stop us. Oh, Baal, oh, Ashtaroth, oh, Marduk, all of the, the, the peoples, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Canaanites, nobody if this is who our God is, we got, just randomly, of all the gods that are out there, the one that chose us is the Lord and creator of the universe, the one who is beyond anything I can possibly imagine. He's, he's the one that we've been talking to this whole time? Pull it together, Moses. If you can get this God on our side, we're going to be fine. Even if he's a little dangerous. It says, go among us. God says, behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people, I'll do marvels such as never have been seen in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of, the, of Yahweh, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. This is actually the very first time that word awesome right there. The New King James is translating uh, Yerah, which is the Hebrew for fear, terror. The very first time in our text that God actually talks about fear. He says, I'm going to do something terrifying. And people are going to be shaking in their boots. And I'm going to do it with you. Some of you know I lived in Japan for a couple of years after college. While I was there, I uh, had a hard time adjusting to the culture. But one of the things that actually helped me was reading uh, James Clavell's Shogun. Shogun. It's a really long novel. It's based on a historical character. He's up there on the right. That's uh, William Adams. He was uh, an English uh, captain. He was working for the Dutch. And uh, he and, uh, was leading a couple of ships to open up Japan to trade in the 16th century. His ships got shipwrecked. And uh, he, he was one of the very few survivors, one of two survivors. Everyone else either died at sea or was executed by the Japanese when they, when they got to shore. Uh, he was one of the survivors. And uh, he learns Japanese and over the course of his life, he lives the rest of his life out in Japan. He becomes uh, the confidant of uh, Emperor Tok- Tokugawa. He, becomes, he goes from being like random foreigner guy to like the number two in the, uh, in the, the, the shogunate in all of Japan. There's a novelization of this, James Clavel Shogun, which changes his name and some of the details. But the, the basics of the story are the same, that there's this guy who just randomly like ends up in Japan and somehow, like, ends up being the closest friend of the emperor. 
What's interesting is in the novelization, and, and very, very, I'm sure in real life, and that at every moment of this guy, from the moment he crashes on the shore to the moment that he dies, an old man in 1620, I think, he knows that the emperor is like this close to just taking off his head. He's a foreigner. The Japanese are not fans of foreigners. Their, their name for us, Gaijin, means barbarian. The Japanese, they, they do not tolerate foreigners. They don't like foreigners. This guy is, like, he, see, he literally watches most of his crew get tortured to death by the Japanese. He is not under any, he knows what's happening here. He is alive only because they're letting him. Tokugawa sees, the reason is because he knows how to make Western-style ships. And the emperor is like, ooh, I'd like to have a navy. And he, he, uh, he becomes uh, Anjin-san, means uh, Mr. Mr. Uh, Sailor. Mr. Sailor is his name in Japan. Um, he ends up becoming a samurai. Only a handful of foreigners ever become samurai, sworn to a uh, Japanese lord. Uh, William Adams was the first uh, and one of the last, especially uh, not white foreigners. And throughout all of this, he's, he, he becomes super, super close to Tokugawa, to the point that Tokugawa tells him things that Tokugawa won't even talk to his own wife about. And the reason for this is because in like, Japanese culture, especially in the 16th century, was very, very reserved. You, you, don't, you don't show your hands. You don't tell anyone what you're actually thinking or feeling. Everything is, like, kept a secret. This made for a very functional society, but also one that was very repressed. But guess what? Those rules don't apply to foreigners. Foreigners are like, like it's, it's like having a, you know, sort of a faithful dog. Honestly, this is kind of how they, in some ways, look at, it's not that bad anymore, but it used to be. So, so Tokugawa, the emperor, is like, oh, I have a, a pet here that um, does everything that I say and knows that I could kill him at any moment, but he seems to really like me, and so I can tell him things I wouldn't tell anybody else. And there's this interesting friendship that's possible that, that can develop between um, Adams and Tokugawa because Adams recognizes not that he's his buddy, but that he is like the one who literally holds the sword over his neck at any moment. He's not going to kill me, but he could. And so i got to be careful, but at the same time, what he values about me is that I'm willing to tell him the truth. I'll explain how I feel, what I think. And so uh, Adams spends his whole life kind of navigating this weird, like, he's open and and real with Tokugawa, but he's also, let's not, it can't be too familiar. This dude dude can kill me. And as a result, they have uh, one of, you know, the most amazing friendships that traditional Japanese culture um, admits of. And I found this to be the case when I was there. Japanese people were much more willing to be honest with me because they expect that barbarians are like, just wear our feelings on our sleeves. And they like that. That relationship, though, between Adams and the emperor, it's very much like the, the, the evolution of Moses' relationship to God. Moses thought, oh, we're just, you know, we're buddies, and you might be a decent God, who knows? You got us out of Egypt, that was cool. 
And in this moment, he starts to reckon that, no, no, God's way bigger and incomprehensible and, and dangerous. Uh, there's nothing safe about this guy. But he's good. He's loving. He's not, he's not going to do anything bad. But he could if he wanted to. But he won't. Cause, and, and, and in that, recognizing that, the, 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 the friendship between Moses and God, it, it actually gets closer. Because God has revealed who he really is. This is probably the most important thing in your note sheets. The fear of God makes friendship with God closer. Fear of God makes friendship with God closer. Most people, especially in the modern world, they're like, especially atheists and agnostics, they're like, that God in the Bible, he's crazy. Who wants a God like that? I don't want a God who's dangerous. I want a God who's fun and nice, who likes me, does nice things for me. And if that's not God, I'm not interested. But I think what the Bible is saying is saying, look, yeah, God's first word is I love you. God's last word is I love you. Yes, I'm gracious. Yes, I'm good. But if you start to recognize that I don't have to be, that I really could be scary, then how much more does that grace and that love mean? Like, I could run this thing a whole different way. I could just make you do what I want. I could just put the, the, the knife to your throat. I could run things in, in much different ways. And yet, I, I'm choosing, because I'm a loving, giving, gracious God, I'm, I'm choosing to do it the Jesus way and not the other way. And then you can start to really experience what that love is like when that love, you recognize that love is, is actually restraining something that's a little bit scary. We're running uh, short on time, so I'm just going to uh, close this out in prayer. But, but I do want to leave you with this, this notion that, you know, if you're the kind of person who's already, like, terrified of God, just forget everything I said. Just ignore it. If, if you're like running around being like, God, please don't crush me, that's not how God operates. Um, do you remember, in order to get to this place of intimacy with God, Moses started out where you should start out. And that is, I love you. You're awesome. We're buddies. I'm gracious. I forgive you. I, I'm kind to you. Like that's how God starts and initiates relationships with us. And if, you're, and if you haven't experienced that, you need to start there, okay? But you don't want to stay there. And so if you're the kind of person who's been with Jesus for a long time, you're like, eh, me and Jesus, are, we're tight, we're good. I love Jesus, Jesus loves me. He's disappointed sometimes, but he's cool. He just, he's one of the coolest guys I've ever met. He's awesome, right? Okay, if that's where you're at, you need to reckon. He's not going to hurt you. But he could. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do confess that your first and last words to us are grace, loving commitment. But yet, God, we also uh, confess that you're dangerous. 
that you've got teeth. I pray, God, that we'll be people who um, live in light of that, live knowing that you do have incredible power, that you are beyond anything we can imagine, that you are greater, more majestic, that your glory can kill us. And yet in your mercy and your compassion, it doesn't. May we uh, go out from here, people who recognize who you are, what you're like, and have a deep and lasting friendship with you in the blood of Christ, confident and bold, and yet remembering that you are God and we're not. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.